Hey, y'all. So excited. First open table of 2017. That's exciting. If y'all look on your table down there, everybody has one of these. Everybody grab it. Grab it. I'm going to take this home with you guys. So this is our version of the Bible reading plan for this semester. It's going to go along with this series. Now, our goal for all of our devotional lives is that we would have like a very well-rounded devotional life with, you know, prayer, reading the Bible, and other spiritual disciplines. So what this is going to be is hopefully give us all an opportunity together to really kind of explore the different spiritual disciplines and what they mean and how we can incorporate that into our everyday devotional life. So there's going to be a sheet that's going to be passed around. It's a sign-up sheet, and it's going to be week by week, you're going to get an email. This is separate from the weekly email. And it's going to go more in depth of how to do some of these things. So maybe some of y'all haven't meditated over Psalms before. It's going to like break down what that actually means and how to do that. So sign up for that if you are interested in being on that listserv. It's going to be pretty cool. We're going to have some guest guest blog writers. So yeah, make sure to take that home with you. We print a lot of copies. Let's start in prayer. Can we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts towards you, and we open our ears to you, God. We pray, Lord, that when you speak, may all other voices be silent. Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to hear what you have for us tonight. And speak, Holy Spirit, be at work so that you might be glorified in this room tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. So as you can see from those sheets this semester, We're doing a new series, one that I'm very excited about. It's called Unfiltered Snapshots from the Life of David. And it's interesting, with the exception of Jesus, the the account of David, the story of David, gets more chapters in the Bible than any other person. So to give some context, we have 14 chapters that are about Abraham. We have 13 about Joseph. We have 40 about Moses. And when it comes to the life of David, we have 66 chapters chapters written about him, and that's not counting all of the psalms that he's written. And so there is a lot that we can learn by looking at his life, and in his life, we really get an unfiltered picture of what it looks like to walk with God. It isn't some edited, filtered, or sanitized version of what it looks like. This isn't altered to make David look prettier or more holy. His story is so relatable, because as we go through a story, and as we learn more about him, we're going to experience a wide range of different emotions. We're going to see moments of great courage, and we're going to see moments of great faith when we're all really rooting for David to succeed. And then we're going to see points of deep sin where David will really disappoint us, where we're all rooting for him, and then he fails pretty spectacularly. We're also going to see points where David suffers so deeply that we'll have empathy for him. But what's going to happen as we encounter the life of David is not just that we'll experience all of these emotions, but rather that we will discover the faithfulness of God. And through his story, we will be plunged into the depths of God's grace. So overall, we will discover what it truly means to walk with God. So that's what we're doing this semester. I want to open with a story, a bit of peculiarities about my childhood, This will be the most Texas story I have ever told in Chi Alpha. 
so be ready. So my dad really likes snakes, um, rattlesnakes in particular. So most kids had like rattles growing up, or we have these toys in Mexico called maracas. We had like rattles from the actual rattlesnake to play with. Um, in the back of our car growing up, there was a snake catching kit. And um, so there's materials for catching rattlesnakes. So there is this big like sack that was allegedly like rattlesnake proof. And then there is this like long metal bar used to, to pin it down and then to scoop it up into the bag. And my dad, um, he's one of the most observant persons when it comes to finding snakes. We could be driving like 70 miles per hour on rural Texas roads in the middle of the night and he would see a snake on the side of the road, slam on the brakes, and we would spend about 15 minutes trying to catch the snake. Um, he would catch it both for food, so we ate rattlesnake meat a bit, and then he would also use the skin to, uh, he would take the skin and he would make uh, those things that go around the cowboy hats. My dad didn't even wear cowboy hats. Um, so there are constantly snakes in my house, intentionally, and I would open the freezer, and there'd be a rattlesnake there that he hadn't gotten around to like skinning yet. I'd go into the garage and there would be like a snake on the ground. And I'd walk into the kitchen and there'd be like another snake lying out to dry. You can put the next, yeah. There'd just be like another snake just lying out to dry. And then there's this truck. Um, so my dad, I, I texted him and asked him to send me those two pictures and then he got really excited and sent me like 15 I'm not going to show them all to you. That's not even our truck. I don't know whose truck that is. But um, there's a lot of rattlesnakes, and I've just learned not to ask questions. Um, but my dad, he'll look at these rattlesnakes, and he'll notice, like, he thinks certain snakes are pretty. And they all look the same to me, but he, he always points out, like, the differences in these snakes. I'll be like, yeah, like, that looks different from the last snake you caught like a snowflake. It's like a little snake snowflake. So I grow up, I'm not a fan of snakes, but I'm not really afraid of them either. I just, I'm not a fan. And I don't quite like notice the things that my dad notices when he looks at snake. One, he notices like the intric intricacies, is that a word, of them? And he also notices when they're around all the time. Like there could be a snake in the back corner and he would see it. That is not the case with me, and some of y'all have been on adventures with me where I have noticed the snake a little too late, and then the snake is angry, and nobody likes to be around an angry snake. So what we're going to look at tonight in the scriptures is something that God notices, but a lot of us miss. And what we're going to see in the passage tonight is that God notices the most important things, and it's very easy for us to overlook or think that they're not important. And in fact, as we hop into the story of David tonight, we're going to get one of the most clarifying verses in the Bible when it comes to where our identity is in. So this passage tonight, it's really important for all of us, everybody, but I think it's especially important for us here at Georgetown. And here's why. Because I think a lot of y'all, when you were in high school, you were a very big fish in a small pond. There's chances that you're probably one of the most smartest, the one of the smartest people in your school. 
probably a lot of you here held a lot of titles. Maybe you were class president, maybe you were prom king or queen. Maybe you were the most athletic person in your campus, maybe you were one of the most talented, or maybe you were even one of the most attractive people. And then you get to Georgetown. <laughs> And then you get to Georgetown, and you're like, man, everybody here is smart, talented, athletic, and beautiful, and now you're feeling like you're just average. That now you're this small fish in a really big pond, and for the first time you feel like you're just normal. And how do we respond when that happens to us? This passage tonight is for you. It cuts through the fog, and it brings us this crystal clear clarity for how to respond to these moments that we face. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's going to be up on the screen tonight. And let me set the stage for you. This is what's happening in 1 Samuel 16. The first king of Israel, Saul, has shown his true colors, and he's shown that he is a man that is full of pride. And there is two specific situations where he decided to deliberately disobey the Lord's command, and God has rejected him as the king of Israel. So this was a desperate time for Israel, and God was like, yeah, you're not going to be the king for much longer. So there's this tension throughout Israel, and they're wondering who is going to be the next king that could lead Israel, God's people, from the brink of extinction at the hands of the, Phil uh, at the Philistines to a nation that is striving and honoring God. Who is going to do this? So this great anticipation for wondering who is going to take over. So we're going to start in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? So here's the deal. Samuel, he's the prophet of the day. He's the kingmaker. He's the person responsible for finding the next king. And he's so discouraged at this fact that things went really south with Saul. And he doesn't know who is going to be the next king. So he's in mourning. The whole nation of Israel is in mourning with what's going to happen. Who is going to lead God's people? So God says, Samuel, how long are you going to sit there and mourn? And then he says the rest in verse 1. Get up, fill your horn with oil, and go to Bethlehem. There is a farmer there by the name of Jesse, and I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about this, he will kill me. Saul's really nervous right now. He knows, or Samuel is really nervous right now. He knows that Saul is off his rocker. He's very angry. And if he hears that he's searching for the next king, there's a very real chance that Saul could kill him. So Samuel, he follows the word of God, and he sets off on this nine-mile journey into Bethlehem. The rest of verse 2. The Lord says, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me, then, the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? So we're going to stop right here for a little bit. Here's something that we need to know. The prophets of the time were not one for making small talk and having one-on-ones with people over coffee. The prophet 
they would only come to the town if something bad was going to happen or if they had a very specific, uh, very specific purpose. So here's what I think happened. I think that somebody, probably a group of kids playing soccer, sees Samuel coming in the distance and goes off to warn the elders and everybody's freaking out, wondering what they might have done in the past couple weeks that would have warranted a visit, that would have warranted a visit from Samuel. So they were trembling, thinking, oh no, what have we done that Samuel would have to come to us? And people got really nervous every time the prophet was going to come to town because he was either going to bring judgment, which is what he did most of the time, or he had a very specific purpose. So they asked him, do you come in peace? And Samuel replies in verse 5, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, I've come to lead you all in a special worship service. The rest of verse 5 says, Consecrate yourself and come to sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. So while the elders here are getting consecrated and ready for the service tonight, ready for the sacrifice, Samuel goes over to Jesse's house, and he consecrates them. And again, this is something I imagine. This is what I imagine the conversation was like when he was there. I think he told Jesse, one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. This is what God said. So you need to go get them all, and you can't miss this. God told me he's coming from your family. He's coming from farmer Jesse's family. In verse 6, we see um, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointing stands here before the Lord. So this is what happens. Jesse, he came with only seven of his sons. And there is one that is immediately striking. His name is Eliab. He's the oldest son, and he has this look about him, the Bible says. He, he looks like a natural leader. And Samuel was probably thinking, that's the one. That is what I'm talking about. This is the next person who's going to lead Israel. He has the look of a king. There he is. And the prophet, it's as the prophet was drawn to him. But God knows what's going on in Samuel's heart. And then we get to verse 7. And verse 7, I think, is one of the most important verses in this entire passage because it really gets to the heart of where our identity lies. And in verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Wow. So Eliab comes up, Samuel's thinking this got to be the guy, and God's saying, no, no, no. And it's like, it's like in this moment that God is seeing Samuel at a jewelry store. And Samuel's thinking he's going to buy some 24 karat gold, but instead, it's just fool's gold. Or Cam, or not Cameron, Samuel. Uh, <laughs> it's your shout out for the sermon. Um, he thinks he's going to buy a one karat diamond, but it's really just cubic zirconia. And God's saying, don't do it. Stop it. You are looking at this man's good looks and his kingly looking posture. But talent, beauty, brilliance, money, they're fool's gold. God is saying, I'm not impressed by his looks. I'm not even impressed by his charisma. And I think that's interesting. God, he never thinks a person is cool. He's not impressed by where y'all go to school. 
He's saying it's all fool's gold. He's saying that he knows a person's heart and character are worth far more than any of these things. And he knows that if they go down this route of looking at things on the outside, looking at external factors, then this will bring destruction to Israel and God's people. And God, he isn't just trying to save Israel from destruction here. He's also trying to keep us from making this big mistake as well because it'll be just as destructive in our own life. If we center our life around the wrong things, if we value the wrong things and ultimately build our identity around the wrong things, then we'll spend our lives chasing fool's gold. So verse 8 says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons that you have? And I think at this point, Samuel's probably pretty frustrated because he told Jesse, Bring all of your sons. You had one job. You're missing somebody. In verse 11, um, Jesse answers this. He says, well, there is the youngest, but he's out tending to the sheep. And here's what we have to realize here. The word youngest in Hebrew is a very difficult word to translate, but it had this connotation of, well, there's somebody who's less important, or there's somebody, but he's not the one that you're looking for. Basically saying that, that David was the runt, of the family, had these connotations. And then the second thing we notice here is David is out watching the sheep. And we miss the impact that this has in our culture. But let me tell you, David knew exactly what this meant. So in this time, to watch the sheep, that was not a job that you gave your son. That was a job that you gave your servant. It was considered one of the lowest jobs that you could have. And David knew that. He knew he was at the bottom of the ladder, and he knew what his father thought of him, so much so that he didn't even make the cut to be at the table to choose the next king. He didn't even get to be in the room. Then Samuel says in verse 11, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he's upset, told him to get all of his sons, left one out. He walked nine miles, and Samuel's an old guy at this point. He's tired, but he says, We will stand here all night until David gets here. So they send for David. David comes, and he's smelling like sheep. And his hands and his skin are probably roughed up from working in the fields all day. His skin's probably deeply sunburned from being out in the sun day after day. But the Bible says in verse, in verse 12, it says, He was glowing with health, and he had a fine appearance and handsome features. And he walks in, and the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil. And this is the horn that Samuel had to fill up with anointing oil and walk with for nine miles. He took this, and, he, and with it he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord powerfully came upon David. And Samuel then went home to Ramah. So David comes. 
and he's smelling like sheep. And this old man, the old man prophet, he takes the cork off his horn and he pours the anointing over all over David. The anointing, it's going through his hair, it's going down his neck, it's going down his robes. And Samuel leans into him and says, you are going to be the next king of Israel. And it says that this happened in the presence of his brothers. And I wish I could see what their faces were like, because you know what they're probably thinking in this moment. What is God doing when he says, that's my man? He's being completely subversive to the culture that's around him. And he's saying how not to build your life and who to build your life around. And every single person in that room got a lesson that day on what is truly important and what are the things that God looks at that the culture doesn't. And I think what's interesting here is even Samuel the prophet missed this. Even Samuel the prophet was looking at outward appearances, was looking at traditional markers for what we would say a king should be. And I think if Samuel, the prophet, could miss that, then I think there's definitely a lot of us in here who could miss that same lesson as well. With one selection of king, God completely levels it all. And he says, this is what I'm looking for. So let's talk about this for a moment. God, the culture, it gives us so many filters for how we can view our lives. And we're going to talk about these filters in a little bit. But they tell us how we construct our identity. They tell us how to define our value. And as we're starting this semester, a lot of us might have even have made New Year's resolutions, not even realized that it was fool's gold that we were chasing after. I remember this one moment when I was a sophomore. And I... I don't know, must have been in one of my devotional times. But I was praying a prayer that maybe a lot of you guys have prayed where I was really nervous that I wasn't going to succeed or reach the goals that I had for my life. And in that moment, I felt God say that the danger is not that I'm not going to reach my goals. I'm probably going to reach my goals. You guys are probably going to reach your goals. But I felt God saying the danger is that you will reach your goals and then find out that they were the wrong goals. And find out that the things that you thought you wanted was just fool's gold. Because we aimed, because I aimed at the wrong things. So this chapter that we're reading here, it shatters each of these filters, of these things that we build our identity around. And the first of these filter, filters is our culture says that we are our performance. That if you want to know what really matters, if you want to know who you really are, well, how are you doing? How are things going in your life? And this is really easy when you're in high school and you have a GPA of a 4.2 on a 4.0 scale. It's really easy when you have a great SAT score and gotten to an amazing university. And then you get here. And as a result, there's so much pressure to succeed academically. But it's not because we want to be good stewards of our gift. It's because culture has told us so much that we are how we perform. If you want to see how you're doing, if you want to know where your value comes, comes in your next grade on your paper, comes on your next final exam. 
But the scripture says this. It says in Romans 5.8 that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. We put it in other words, before you ever did anything good, Jesus loved you. And we see this with Jesus himself in the Gospels when he was baptized and God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And this was long before Jesus had ever performed a miracle. This is long before he began his public ministry and began to do amazing things. God loved him. In the Gospel, it fundamentally says that your value is not in your performance. A second filter that culture gives us in finding our value is that our value is in our position. So maybe there are certain people in here who aspire to certain careers or they choose certain majors, not because you're passionate or you're interested, but because of the title that might be on your business card one day. Or because you think if you do this, you might finally get your parents' approval. Or you'll fill your time at Georgetown with internships and clubs and jobs, all while neglecting your own soul and the souls of the people around you. And we major in things because we think, maybe now I can, I can have that approval that I've been looking for. And our greatest fear is that we might end up flipping burgers at a fast food restaurant one day. And that's because culture tells us that there's so much value in our position. And we're told that we'll only be significant in life if we do something great, if we get our name in those metaphorical flashing lights. But as we can see in this story, those things do not matter to God. He picked a lowly shepherd to become the next king of Israel. In 1 Peter 1.24, he says, We are told that all men are like grass, and whatever glory we accumulate, it will quickly wither like the grass and fade like the flower. So here's another one. Culture tells us that we are our appearance. I think that's very relevant here. I think if we're honest, a lot of us look in the mirror and we don't really like what we see. We wish our hair was different. We wish we weighed less. We wish we were taller. This passage says that God, he doesn't pay attention to these things. He doesn't look at somebody and think, wow, I really outdid myself there. I broke a new mold. And likewise, God, he doesn't look in the mirror. He doesn't look at you and wish that he saw someone else. He's saying that that's not where your value is. And if you, if you find your value, if you find your identity in these things, then it will drive you into the ground. And finally, the list can go on, but this will be the last one, tells us that you are your popularity. That the more money that you have, that the more valuable and important you are. And you can be in more exclusive clubs, and other people will like you and want to be like you and wish they were like you and look up to you. And the problem is, Jesus says, do not fall for this. He says, your life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions and the esteem that you have with people. And if you have a good GPA, that's great, but it doesn't matter. There's nothing wrong with careers that our culture esteems. There's nothing wrong with having notoriety or money or being beautiful, but these things cannot be what we center our lives around. They cannot be the filter from which we view our identity because they would take us in this wrong direction. As we're now kind of getting into the beginning 
of our adult lives, if we make this fundamental mistake early on, then we will spend our lives in pursuit of this fool's gold and not even know it. And God says that there are things that are infinitely more important, and they are the issues of your heart. In a few chapters earlier, God said that he was looking for someone who is a man after his own heart. That might be a verse a lot of us have heard before. So the question I have naturally while reading this chapter is what was it? What was it about David's heart that God saw? And we see uh, immediately after this in the next chapters, we get an idea of what this is. But scripture, it doesn't explicitly tell us what God saw in David's heart. But we get an idea, and there's two scenes that I want to look at. The first is this. After David was appointed that he was going to be the next king of Israel, um, King Saul he started to experience torment. There were these evil spirits that were tormenting him, and he could not find rest from them. And one of his servants said, well, I think I know somebody who plays music, and I think if he can come and if he can play music for you, then I think you could experience rest, and I think you can experience peace from these things that are tormenting you. And this person was David. And it says in verse 19, it says, Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Now this part's crazy too, because David, after being appointed the king of Israel, is back with the sheep. The anointed king of Israel is back tending to his flocks. They all saw it. They all saw him being anointed. Everybody was there. And after this anointing, David doesn't go back and he doesn't change his business cards to king-elect. He doesn't start building relationships and forming a cabinet. We see something very different. We see that David is humble enough to go back home and submit himself to the most menial of tasks. So we see in the next chapter, in chapter 17, that David is now working two part-time jobs. He's running back and forth from tending to the sheep in the pasture and playing music at the palace for Saul. What did God see in David's heart? He saw somebody whose identity in him was so secure because only a person who was that secure in God could be appointed king and go back and work in the pasture. Only a man who had absolutely nothing to prove to anyone could do that. His identity was not up in the air. And I imagine that there was probably times, there was probably things about working day in and day out in the fields, doing the hardest job that was reserved for the lowest people, that stripped David away from other things he could have placed his identity in. But it was rooted in his relationship with God, and God's love and acceptance for him was enough. And he wrote in one of the Psalms, he wrote saying, God is my rock. My life is built on him, and God is the solid rock on which I stand. And when God looks at him, he sees a man who is secure enough to be the next king of Israel and also go back and tend to the sheep. And the second thing he saw was this. He saw a man who desired the things that God desired. And Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of righteous, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that is what David did. And as we read his story over the semester, we begin to see how true this really is. 
But his story, it's not perfect. When we see him mess up, we see him sin so deeply. But we also see time and time again that even in those moments, his identity is rooted with God and his heart is bent towards God. And here's the good news. That we are told in scripture that because of what Jesus did on the cross, that because of the death, burial, and resurrection, that our sins are forgiven. But I think the amazing thing is that God wasn't just content with forgiving us of our sins. That wasn't enough for him. He goes further and he says he adopts us as sons and daughters. He says, come and be a part of my family and I will be your father and you will be sons and daughters of God. And in doing that, he gave us the most secure identity that we could ever have. And it means that we don't have to go running around Georgetown trying to build an identity that's based on our performance. We don't have to build an identity that's based on our talent or our appearance or on our wealth. God is enough. He's saying that you can be free, that you are fully loved and fully accepted by the only person whose opinion matters. And probably the verse that I quote the most to myself in regards to this, um, in regards to this truth, is Colossians 3.3. And I put it up because I think it will make a really good memory verse for us. So if you have notes, you can jot this one down. But it says simply this, that my, not, my life is now hidden with Christ in God. And as this sinks into our heart, we can be free from trying to seek out our own glory and can instead do what Jesus commands us, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So I'm going to go to the questions for a little bit, and then I'll wrap up with some questions for you guys. I'm going to go into worship. There's Mary. There's Mary. There it is. All right. um, what is the difference between performance that isn't important to God and discipline that is important for a faithful life? What is the difference between performance that is, impor- is not important to God and discipline that will help us grow? Yeah. I think it's just it's a matter of where, where our hearts are. If our hearts are in performing, even in good things, if our heart is in praying a lot or reading the Bible a lot so that we may appear oppressive to other people, impressive to other people, then I think God would look through that and he says, no. You don't have to strive. You don't have to be something to win my approval. And I think Barrett, where are you, Barrett? Barrett's back from Scotland. He always reminds me. Yeah. A lot of people are back. Hugh's also back from Scotland, too. We're going to, Michelle's back from France. Jen's back from New York. I shouldn't have done that because I'm probably going to forget somebody. Side note Aaron is back from China. Miranda is back from Spain. Now that we've established that, this gives me more time to think of how I was going to answer this question, too. Um, but oh God, Nick is also back from China. Yeah, I shouldn't have. Anyway, Barrett is back from Scotland. And he always says, he always, there's, you know, there's a difference from things that, like, we have to do versus things that we get to do. And Barrett always instills that in me. He never says, like, I have to do this. He always says, I get to do this. And I think that that's the difference between 
like performing for God and striving and being disciplined in our faith, when we perform for God, it's that, that we have to, that we have to do these things to not disappoint or to win approval. But when we look at it as something we get to do, all of this comes first. This fact that we are a child of God, that we are loved unconditionally and accepted unconditionally, all of that comes first. There is nothing that can separate us from that identity. And then as a result, we get to do these things in this plan. We get to read scripture. We get to see who God is. We get to pray. We get to, we get to rest in Sabbath. We get to worship. We get to do all of these things. Not things that we have to do. They're things that we get to do as a result of what God has done for us. So it seems like the things that culture tells us to find worth in are all things that you can see are tangible items. What does God provide us with that we can use to, like, gauge the way that we're living a godly life? Does that make sense? I tried to convince the question. That was a good one. What things, what things, my mind just blinked. What things does God give us that allow us to to live for him? Like what talents? Or like how, how do we know we're doing a good job? Oh, gotcha. How do we get a gold star from Jesus? <laughs> hmm. That is a great question. I think kind of with everything, there's always like, two extremes. And I saw it once. This is a good this is a good one-liner to remember. This is something that I tell myself often is that our weaknesses are really strengths misdirected. So like weaknesses are really strengths that are misdirected. And here's what I mean by that. I think that all of us come into this room tonight. We have these different talents. We have different things that we're really good at and different things that we were created to do. A lot of us will go on to have jobs that are very prestigious. A lot of us will go on to have successful athletic careers. All of us will go on to have these things. And I think the, the, the weakness is that we would apply those strengths that we have into the wrong things. And I think that that's what God's saying here. And I think it's interesting how judging God's reaction to the first person who came up, was it Eliab? Um, It also says that David was, I forget the word, but like good-looking. Like scripture also says that. It comments on his appearance. Yet we get this impression that he was humble and lowly, and God selected him out of obscurity. And so I think like when we look at David and even his oldest brother, scripture still kind of says the same things about their appearance. We just see very differently how they're manifested. And in the next chapter, too, um, we see, I don't know if this is worth going to find it in my notes. It's probably not. We see that um, Elib's true colors come out, and we see in the way he handles things that, that his heart is not after Jesus. And so, I don't want to say God called the right one on that, obviously. But anyway, I don't know if that answered the question. Is there a third question there? No. Great. Great. All righty. Can come on up, Daniel. I wanted to close with a few questions that I want us to think about. You can think about them now, obviously, as I say them, but also think about them during worship. Offer them up to God during worship. Think about them as we go about our week and of the semester. The first question is this. Where 
is your identity? Like, if you're really honest with yourself, where is your identity? Is it in your performance? Because if it is, it's sinking sand. It's fool's gold. Or is it bound up in your relationship with God? And I think maybe a different way to phrase that is do you feel like you have to secure your identity? Because you don't. That's something that's given to us. It's not something that we have to earn. And the second question is, is there something that God is stripping from your identity so that you can be more like him? Maybe you are really beautiful. Maybe you are incredibly smart. Maybe you are very talented. Maybe you're a lot of these things. But is God trying to redirect you? Is God trying to say, you are all of those things, but that doesn't matter. That is not who you are. That is not where your identity is. All of those things will fade away. You'll get old and wrinkly. You'll start forgetting things. You won't be as sharp as you used to be. All of these things will fade away. And the third question is this. What do you really desire? Is it for God and his glory? Would you be like David? Would you want to bear the family resemblance of God? Or do you really desire things that at the end of the day are ultimately fool's gold? So if we can stand, we'll transition into a time of worship. And I want to say that if you're here tonight and if you're not a follower of Jesus, the Bible says this. He says that to those who receive him, to those that believe in his name, to those, in other words, that make Jesus their king, he gives you the right to be called the children of God. And if you open your heart to him, he will make you a child of God, and you can be free. You do not have to walk out those doors and try to make a name for yourself here on campus. You don't have to put your feet on the ground and try to make something of yourself. You can breathe deeply and know that you are completely accepted and unconditionally loved. And that is so much more than you could ever put on a resume. So as we go into worship, would you be honest with God? It says, don't build your life on fool's gold. Instead, build your life on the things that matter most. So I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we'll transition to a time of worship. God, I pray that these things that strip us uh, that separate us from you. Maybe it's money, maybe it's beauty, maybe it's talent. Pray, Lord, that you remind us that it's all sinking sand and that we may stand on the solid ground and that we may have the real gold, the pearl of great price that was found in the field and it's worth everything, God. So God, during this time, I ask that you strip away what you need to strip away. And if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that they would receive you today, and that they would become your child. In your name we pray. Amen.